All right, Luke chapter 8 and John 17. We will hopefully be back in John 3 next week. But for now, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. If you've been in church for any amount of time, uh, you have experienced this where maybe there are those who come along and they profess faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, and uh, I want to follow him, and they continue for a time. Maybe they're actually very excited about their faith and uh, very bold in proclaiming, my life has changed, I'm now going to follow Jesus. And they may come to Bible study, and they may pray, and they seem excited about this, and you say, wow, what a vibrant disciple. Only after time to have that person almost as quickly as they got into the faith to leave the faith. The excitement dissipates, and that full devotion to Jesus Christ gives way, uh, maybe uh, to um, what? Love for the world? Uh, you know, the pleasures of the world that I said I was giving up actually are quite alluring to me, and maybe, value, uh, maybe I value those things even more than the value I profess to have for Christ. Or maybe they receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then they find in short order that, wait a second, this actually comes with cost. That's something that in the West we don't experience a whole lot, whereas maybe in some other nations, professing Jesus is actually putting your life in danger. But here in the West, we still experience some cost. Now, all of a sudden, my uh, relationships are strained. My friendships are strained. My uh, marriage might even be a little bit strained if my spouse is not approving of my decision to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and to live for Him. So all of a sudden, now the faith comes with cost. And you know what? I wanted eternal life. I wanted to know that I had a relationship with the Father, but I didn't want to have to pay a price. And so now there are those who turn from Jesus and say, the cost is too high. You've experienced people like this. I've experienced people like this. And the fact of the matter is, as Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, uh, he signaled and kind of gave the warning that this is what we will experience. That's the nature of the kingdom. And so he gave a parable in Luke chapter 8, which is commonly called the parable of the sower, or better, the parable of the soils. We're just going to start here. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. We're going to end up in John 17. But let's read together the parable of the sower. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town to town came to him, that's Jesus, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so, simple picture, somebody's got a bag of seed, and he's just out there, and he's broadcasting that seed. And he's just throwing it, and some of it lands on the pathway, and some of it lands in a field, and some of it lands among rocks and thorns and so on. But he's just casting that seed out, uh, kind of seeing where some may, might take root. That's the picture. Now, the disciples asked Jesus in verse 9 what the parable meant. And you might be asking that right now. He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. And so Jesus clearly is describing the kingdom of God here. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now he gives the interpretation. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And so the idea being the word of God is preached. Hey, 
Trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through him. And so be saved. The gospel goes out and just bounces off that person, right? No penetration whatsoever, and Jesus is saying the devil just snatches that away and uh, doesn't have any effect at all. Verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But they don't have any root. And so that's that seed that falls on just some shallow soil. And, you know, the roots go down a little bit, but then it just hits rock, and it can't go any deeper. There's no root, and because there's no root, it can't sustain any upward growth. And so it starts out well, but then it just dies. These have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And that's what I said. There's cost. There's testing. There's pressure now that you're a Christian, and so the faith is not sustained. And if you come from a nation other than Canada, you understand what that means. And so if you're in some other nation... And uh, some believe, but then immediately face that pressure from the culture all around them uh, and then fall away. That's the idea. And then there are those in verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. So not just persecution, not just testing, but sometimes just temptation. We understand that to be saved is to turn from idols and to serve the living God. That is, to turn from an old lifestyle and say, I now want to live for Christ. And so this one says, you know what? I kind of get a glimpse of who Jesus is, but I kind of still drawn back to my old lifestyle. Drawn back to the world, the cares, riches, and just pleasure. And that's valued more than Jesus. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience, endurance, continuance, even perseverance. That's the genuine believer. And so Jesus here is revealing that as we preach the gospel, there'll be all sorts of diverse responses. The thing about these responses, however, is those who, it appears as if life is there, and so they spring up, whether it be in the weeds or whether it be in the soil, Uh, practically speaking, you understand that as a church, we're going to have folks like this in our midst because they do make a profession of faith. And depending on how you operate as a church, they may actually even be baptized. Uh, And here they are in in our midst professing faith, but then they fall away. And this is important to recognize because this causes a lot of confusion for Christians. What happened to so and so? I mean, it, it appeared as if they were genuinely saved, and now it appears as if they're not, they're not here anymore. So what do we conclude? They were saved, and now they're not saved? They were believers, and now they're not believers? They had eternal life, but now they've lost eternal life? Is that the conclusion we come to? I don't think so, as we will see. Jesus uses a different analogy in Luke 14 to describe the one who embraces him, uh, but then uh, can't endure the cost of discipleship and then so falls away in Luke 14, verse 28. Here he's not talking about seed, but he's using the analogy of somebody building a tower. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You're going to start a building project, do some research. How much are the materials going to cost? How much is the labor going to cost? Do I have enough? Can I get it done all the way to the end? Why? Because if you don't, you're going to look pretty foolish with a half-built house on your lots. 
And the seasons change and the snow falls and they got snow drifts on the inside of your bare house because you can't finish it. And your neighbors come by and say, man, what did that guy do? He didn't think this through very well. That's the idea. And Jesus is saying there are those who profess faith in him. They have not counted the cost. And when there appears to be a cost, uh, they just fall off. And, you know, that's that person whose family members, uh, maybe that person who receives Christ and they go and tell their family members and their friends, oh, I'm going to church now. Uh, Oh, I'm following Jesus now and even preaching the gospel to them. And their family members say, oh, wow, uh, something's going on here. There's some big change. And then all of a sudden, this person doesn't continue in the faith. And then those family members and friends uh, that they've impacted and that they preach the gospel to and so on are saying, what happened here? What happened here? And then what happens? They begin to think about the faith, Christianity. And they say, well, it must not be genuine. It must not actually have the power to change lives. Because look at our acquaintance, who there started out and now uh, they have forsaken the whole thing. And Jesus says, that's like that man who builds a tower, and others come along, and they begin to mock him. The point is simply this. As a church, we are going to experience those who are short-lived disciples. What do we do with these? How do we understand the faith? Is it possible to lose your salvation? And better, how do we understand uh, those who endure in the faith? Where does that endurance come from? Is this a matter of one category of those who profess faith in Christ and they just don't hang on hard enough? We're over here, we might have you who's continuing in the faith, and that's because you're hanging on with white-knuckled strength and you're just so much better than that person who made a profession of faith but falls off. Where does our endurance come from? What we don't want to do is make a category for these short-lived disciples affirming them in their faith, even though there seems to be no continuance in following Jesus. There are churches that do this. They have categories for the undiscipled disciple. They have categories for the non-following follower. They have categories for the unchristlike Christian, believe it or not. You might have heard the phrase, the carnal Christian. The Christian who's still in their flesh. And all of those things are oxymorons. They don't make any sense whatsoever. Those are unbiblical categories. And so we need to understand this morning uh, who a genuine believer is and how that genuine believer continues in their faith. And we're going to do it without putting an emphasis upon our own uh, natural abilities to hang on to Jesus, as we're going to see. So what are the marks of a genuine believer in Christ? One of them is continuance. John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And Jesus is bending over backwards there to try to make it abundantly clear that those who follow him are secure. Secure. What does that following look like? What does following Jesus look like? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He also said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you say, well, that sounds harsh. What he's simply saying is that if it comes down to the pressures of mom and dad or or daughter or son, or we could say husband or wife, And that pressure is saying, uh, I don't want you following Jesus. I don't like this new change in your life. And we've seen this happen. 
If then that choice is made, well, I have to please my father or mother or daughter or son over following Jesus, well, then that's an indication that you have not genuinely decided to follow him with your whole heart. And whoever does not take his cross, Jesus says, and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, we know that we're going to be exposed to those who continue for a while and fall away. And this may be confusing for some. Some may come under the mistaken notion that such people were genuinely saved but then lost their salvation. What they don't realize is that such people were never really saved to begin with. Had they been, they would have continued in the faith. They would have remained a follower of Jesus. Now, what I said there was if they, continue in, if they continued in the faith, they would have been a genuine believer. No, what I'm not saying is if they continued in the faith, they would then have been a genuine believer. But rather, if they were a genuine believer, they would have continued in the faith. That's a major difference. And so on what basis can we say if they were a genuine believer, they would have continued in the faith. What I'm not saying is, oh, Christians are such good people. If you're here and, and you're a visitor and you're not used to going to church, I hope you don't have the impression that those who come to church regularly and who are Christians are such because they feel like they're better than others. If you're going to be, become a Christian, what you first must do is confess. I can't save myself and I'm wholly... Uh, unable to save myself. And that's why we need Jesus. We are Christians because we confess we need Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we're sinners. And so, that being said, we maybe can even apologize uh, on behalf of maybe some other experiences you've had where you've encountered Christians and they come across as hypocrites or they come across as holier than thou or they come across as self-righteous and judgmental towards you or towards the world. Uh, That's not at all what Jesus Christ taught and that's not the example he left. We are Christians because we confess we're sinners. We need to be saved, and we cannot save ourselves. It's Jesus and Jesus alone, so we're following him, right? So let's get that straight. Uh, And so, on what basis can we say, if one is a genuine believer, he will continue in the faith? We're not saying that because we feel that a genuine believer has that inherent strength to just hang on to Jesus uh, because we are cut above. John 17. John 17. What we're going to learn this morning is that a genuine Christian is one who's saved by God's grace and kept by God's grace. Saved by God's grace, kept by God's grace. Saved by God's grace, kept by God's power. A genuine believer is secure in his salvation and will not fall away because God himself is sustaining his faith and keeping him all the way until the end. John 17, we learn how we are kept in the faith, how we continue, and how we are to follow Christ for our entire lives. This is a glimpse behind the scenes of eternal security. John 17 is Jesus himself praying to his Father towards the end of his earthly ministry. His death is around the corner. He has finished the task that the Father has given him in teaching his disciples, as we're going to see. And he prays. He says, I am no longer in the world, John 17, verse 11. But they, my disciples, are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Now look at this. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. And none of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. An amazing prayer. As we're going to see, uh, all three members of the Trinity are here in this prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the overarching thrust of this prayer is that uh, Jesus is praying to the Father, keep my disciples, keep them in the faith, keep them in your name. And, And we didn't read it, but I believe it's verse 20, makes it very clear that Jesus is not just praying for his disciples, but all those who would hear as a result of their preaching. And that includes us. And so this is a prayer about God keeping his people. This is a prayer about eternal security from the Son to the Father. And so let's look at this, and I think we're going to look at three or four points here. And we're going to simply ask, how are genuine believers kept in the faith? First of all, we see that genuine believers are kept through the power of God. Kept through the power of God. And so here we have the Son of God. Jesus Christ praying to the Father, asking that the Father will keep Jesus' disciples in the faith. He's saying, Father, keep them loyal to you. Keep them faithful. Keep them in your name. Don't allow their faith to fail. That's that's a revelation, isn't it? That we need that prayer. Do you feel that, that you need that prayer? Do you need Jesus praying for you that your faith would not fail? Do you have that sense that if Jesus wasn't praying for you, that your faith would fail if it was left up to you? And I mean, it's, 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 it's said all the time. It's probably overdone. But if it were left to us, uh, if it were up to us to keep our faith, if we could lose our faith, we would, right? If we could lose our salvation, we would if it was ultimately up to us. But here we have the son praying to the father saying, Father, you keep them in the faith. Now look up a little bit here at verse 1 through 8. And we're going to see what Jesus is praying his disciples will remain faithful to. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. What hour? Well, that's the hour of his death, his burial, his uh, ascension, his glorification. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, this is the work that the Father gave Jesus to do, that he has accomplished, okay? Starting in verse 6, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. God the Father gave Jesus these men who would come now and follow him, right? And so those who came and followed Jesus, who expressed faith in him, that was evidence that the Father had first given them to Jesus. 
And Jesus says, I showed them your name. I showed them who you were. I showed them your character. I showed them your very nature. Well, how? Not just through teaching, but through example, because with Christ in their presence, there the presence of God was actually in their midst. And so just by knowing and seeing Jesus Christ, the name of God was manifest to the disciples. And so he says, I've done that. I've manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, that they, may, that they have received, and they have received them, and I've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That's what they believed. So Jesus is praying to the Father, keep them in that. They recognize who I am. They know that you sent me. In other words, they know that I'm the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they now have life in my name, and so keep them in it. That's the prayer. It's an amazing prayer. What does this say, then, about those who profess profess faith in Jesus Christ and maintain that faith their entire lives? What it says is that those who actually maintain their faith and don't fall away are actually those who are being kept by God himself in response to the prayer of the Son. It says that Jesus has prayed for their faith, that their faith would not fail, and the Father has heard. You and I this morning are sustained in our faith, because, and we're going to see this more clearly in a minute, because the Son is praying for us. The Son prays to the Father and says, Father, they believe. They believe that you sent me. They believe that I'm the source of eternal life. They've trusted me. Keep them in it. That's the prayer. But here we find kind of an amazing tension because the thought that immediately comes into mind is, okay, if the son is praying to the father that we might not fall away, then all we got to do is kick back and relax and say, I'm good to go. Right? There's a tension that gets picked up all throughout the New Testament, which seems to balance out, not balance out, but hold into tension this idea of genuine believers must continue in the faith while simultaneously understanding that we're only continuing in the faith because we're being upheld by God's power. Peter picks up this tension in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has what? Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Again, this speaks of, the first portion here doesn't speak of the security of our faith. It's talking about the security of our inheritance. It's saying that that's kept in heaven for us. And so there is eternal life awaiting you and I, right? And I I liked at our um, biblical theology class, the speaker mentioned that oftentimes we think of heaven we're going to float around on clouds and, you know, I'm not musical, but somehow I'm going to know how to play a harp, right? You know, uh, that's, that's not biblical. You don't see that scripturally. Uh, when we talk about eternity, this is tangible. This is a new heaven. This is a new earth. This is, create, this is a new creation, right? Uh, well, that eternal inheritance, free from sin, worshiping him perfectly on a new heaven and a new earth, that inheritance is secured for us by God. It says here that it's kept for us. It's kept in heaven for you in First Peter one four, But interestingly, here in this passage, not only is it that inheritance that God is saying, you follow Jesus, uh, the inheritance is secured for you. Not only does he keep the inheritance for us, but it, it appears as if he also keeps us for the inheritance. Because look what it says next in verse 5. 
You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith. The word guarded there has that idea of being kept or being shielded or being kept under guard. And that's why I say not only is God securing our inheritance, but he's also securing us for the inheritance. Not only is he guarding the inheritance, but he's guarding us. The idea is that God is not only keeping our heavenly inheritance for us, but again, guarding us for that last day. He's guarding us so that we will certainly inherit it. What does it mean to guard us? Well, look what it says here. It says that that we are being kept in verse 5 by God's power. It says, who by God's power are being guarded through what? Being guarded through faith. Whose faith? You are secure, and you will inherit that eternal uh, inheritance because you're being guarded. Guarded by what? Guarded by faith. Is that God's faith? No. Is that Jesus Christ's faith? No. That's our faith. That's our faith. And so I say there's a tension here. God's keeping us by his power, but he's doing it through faith, faith which we express. Interesting. Hopefully this will become more clear as we go. So we have a tension. Genuine believers continue in faith. They remain faithful. They maintain their confession of Jesus Christ, the son of, as Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They remain faithful, trusting him and him alone as Savior from sin and as the personal Lord. Genuine believers follow him their entire lives. Genuine believers uh, remain in the faith. However, we learn that this faithfulness is ultimately the product of God's faithfulness. It is he who's guarding, and it's he who's sustaining, and it's he who's keeping us in the faith, and he's the one that empowers even our expression of that faith. And according to John 17, he's doing it in response to what? The prayer of Jesus. And this is what we see next. Not only are we kept by the power of God, secure in the faith, but next of all, we are kept by the intercession of the Son. The intercession of the Son. That's the Son praying to the Father. Those whom God the Father has given to Christ are eternally secure, but how? Christ intercedes on our behalf praying that God the Father would keep us, praying that our faith would not fail. What we learn is that Jesus did not simply pray that our faith would not fail one time in John 17. What we learn is that Jesus actually is continuing to function in that office of priests, praying and interceding for us. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? Right prior to his death, what did he cry out? He cried those three words, it is finished. And the Bible says that now he has ascended to the Father and he's sat down at the right hand of the Father. One sacrifice, full and final, never to be repeated. And he rested. Does that mean that now Christ does not have an active role at all? He's finished his redemptive work? Remarkably, what the writer of Hebrews indicates is that although Jesus Christ is our high priest, has finished his sacrificial work, he does have work that continues daily. What is that work? Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verse 25, speaking of Christ as our high priest, says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is continuing to pray for us, 
to intercede on our behalf. And it says there that he's able to save us to the uttermost. That full and complete salvation, Christ is able to uh, save us, us who draw near. How? Why? What makes it possible? Because he's actually interceding for us. Why must he continually make intercession for us? Because you and I are terrible, that's why. (laughs) Because we're saved and we have the Holy Spirit, and yes, we've been adopted into the family of God, sure. But you know, you're a sinner still. You still experience temptation. You still experience doubts. And you understand that you, without the Holy Spirit, are a mess. The fact is, we have not yet come to that consummated kingdom where we are fully glorified. And so we still exist in these bodies, and we still fall, we still fail. And if it was up to us, we would renounce Christ, we would turn from Him, and we are uh, absolutely dependent upon the sustaining, interceding work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God, For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. If you're here this morning and you haven't been in church a whole lot, uh, I understand that some of this might be very foreign to you. But simply the idea being there that everybody is an enemy against God by nature. That's how we're born into this world. Jesus Christ bore our sin. That is, he stood in our place and he received the wrath of God upon himself in our place so that we could be saved from the wrath of God through him. And that's what this is saying. For if while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God, reconciled to God. This is two parties that were at enmity with each other, right? There's, there's a need for reconciliation, but because of Jesus and his death on the cross, he's brought us to, to God so that we can have a relationship with him, okay? So we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. But then he says this, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? What does that mean? Resurrection life, yes, but the fact that Jesus Christ is living now, the fact that Jesus Christ is active now, the fact that Christ now is interceding and praying for us now, that's what sustains us in this salvation. We see this truth regarding the resurrected Christ again in Romans 8, verse 34. Paul says, who is to condemn who can, who can con- condemn the one who's a believer in Jesus Christ? Who could say, you know what, you deserve hell to somebody who's a follower of Jesus? Well, nobody can. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And what's the consequence of Jesus' active, ongoing, living ministry, sustaining our faith? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the expected answer is none of it can. We cannot be separated from the love of Christ. Why? Persecution won't do it. Distress won't do it. Famine won't do it. Danger won't do it. Why? Because he's interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Nothing can separate us from his love. We see a vivid illustration of this. Peter. Peter of all people, Jesus says to Peter, upon you I will build my church. Upon this rock, it's Peter, it's his confession, okay, I'm going to build the church. I mean, Peter was a, was a special guy. He's, he's a pillar of the church, he's the key apostle, right, uh, there in Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus says to Peter, shortly before his death, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded you that he might sift you like wheat, 
He's after you, right? And that is Peter later on who would write that we are to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, uh, uh, the devil, is, is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. Like Peter, Peter knew this. And Jesus is saying, Satan's after you. He knows who you are. He knows what I intend to do through you. And so he's after you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But what did Jesus say? But I prayed for you. But I prayed for you. What did he pray? That your faith would not fail. And when you have turned again, he says, strengthen your brother. Jesus is saying, Satan wants to take you out, but I am sustaining your faith through prayer. I'm praying to the Father for you, and therefore your faith will not fail. That's really very important for us to realize. God is actively working to keep us secure. Now, we should be confident because whatever God sets out to do, he's going to accomplish. Nothing can thwart his plan. And so Jesus again can say of his disciples, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. In other words, safe and secure in my hand, safe and secure in the father's hand. Nevertheless, we must realize that our eternal destiny is secure, uh, but that does not mean that this does not require our personal effort. And that's why I say this is not a matter of kick back and relax and everything is good because I've Profess faith in Jesus, therefore, I don't have to do anything. We're going to see this in a minute. The fact is, what God creates, God sustains. When he created the world, he's not the blind watchmaker, you know, winds it up and just lets it go. Uh, He creates and he sustains. Created all of creation, he sustains creation. He upholds it by the word of his power. God created us. He's shown in us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He made us into new creations, and uh, he continues to sustain us. Just as he's chosen to uphold all of creation through the power of the Lord Jesus, he also has chosen to sustain us, our new, uh, his new creations, uh, through the power of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I, gave thanks to, I give thanks to my God always for you, speaking of the believers there in Corinth, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God's the one. He sustains you, and he's going to keep you guiltless all the way to the end. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He sustains us. He keeps us. He maintains our blamelessness all the way to the end. That's his work. But now we're going to start beginning to see where our role comes into this. We're kept by the power of God the Father. We're kept by the intercession of the Son. And number three, we are kept through the sanctification of the Word and Spirit. Look in verse 17 of John 17 as Jesus prays. He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And now what we're realizing, and this is important, God keeps us in the faith, but he does it via means. He does it via, via means, and that is he actually uses some things in order to keep us in the faith. And what we find in verse 17 is he uses primarily the word of God. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul is talking about the armor? How does he describe the word of God in Ephesians 6? He calls it the sword of the Spirit. And so I said that all three members of the Trinity are here in John 17. And you say, well, I see the Father and I see the Son, but where's the Spirit? Well, now we see where the Spirit is. Jesus says to the Father, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. Well, the word cannot be used in the life of a believer apart from the Holy Spirit. The word is the sword of the Spirit. And so in John 14, Jesus promised that he would give us the helper, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, when the Spirit comes, he's going to teach us all things. If you're a genuine believer this morning, you have the Holy Spirit present in you. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit takes the Word, and the Spirit imparts the Word to your heart. The Spirit enables you to appropriate the Word. The Spirit changes you through the Word. And so Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And what he's saying is, Spirit, take that Word and change them. Make them more like me. And really what that is is a sustaining in the faith. And so... Paul said to Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, for training, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the point is that the Christian life then, the one who's genuinely saved, a genuine believer, what does their life actually look like? Up to this point, what we've done is we've kind of looked behind the sovereign curtain to see that working of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, the Son praying to the Father and the sustaining our faith. But what does that actually look like to us uh, here uh, from an earthly perspective? It looks like a man or woman continuing in the Word. It looks like a man or woman who's given themselves to study Scripture, to know God better, to allow the Word to change them, and continuing in that, doesn't it? Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth, and otherwise this is going to be the very means by which you sustain and maintain and keep this one all the way to the end. And so in this weird tension that's hard for us to understand as uh, those from a finite and temporal perspective, our salvation, our security is guaranteed. It is the work of God. But on the other hand, the way that God maintains this looks very earthly and very practical. That is, a genuine believer's... Active and working and diligent and toiling and he or she is in the word. He or she is studying. He or she is reading the scripture and saying, I need to obey this. He or she is opening the word like a mirror and saying, oh, I need to change some things in my life because look at what I'm seeing here. This is what God expects of me. That becomes very, very practical, doesn't it? And so the genuine believer is one who's being sanctified through the truth, which is the word. The Holy Spirit is imparting that to, the, to uh, his or her heart. And so now this sustaining operation is Trinitarian, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now we've got to understand something here. This is where this transition then begins to happen. Begin to see our responsibility, the role that we play in remaining faithful to Christ our part in continuing. The Holy Spirit cannot use the Word of God in our lives if we don't pick it up, right? I say we're going to kick back and relax, and so you have a Bible on your bookshelf and say, okay, well, that's not going to work. And so there's some practicality here. 
Our responsibility, we open up the Word of God, and uh, we study, and we read, and we meditate, and we memorize, and we apply, we obey, and so on. That's our responsibility. But then you can go back in the other direction and say, but you know what, we wouldn't even have that desire if it weren't by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And so it all comes back to God and His glory. And so that's our last point. We're kept by the power of God the Father. We're kept by the intercession of the Son. We're kept by the sanctification of the Word and Spirit. And then lastly, we're kept through the perseverance of our own faith. Salvation is accomplished. It is finished. We are secure in God. But he's chosen for that security to rest upon his continuing sustenance of believers. He did not say, okay, check, done, you've expressed faith, you've got the inheritance, go about your life however you wish. Instead, what he's done is said, this one is mine, I've given him to the Son, and now he will make it all the way to the end, he will inherit, but he's going to do it through that process of sanctification on an earthly level, which is going to look like using the Word of God and submitting to the Holy Spirit and obeying him and enduring temptation and enduring persecution and all of that, and he's going to remain faithful all the way to the end. So it's messy, isn't it? It's just messy. It's not, uh, I put your name over into this column, and there you go, oh, we'll see you later, and you can just be assured that when you die, you're going to wake up with eternal life, no matter how you live in this life. So, is this entirely the work of God? Yes. Does that mean we play no role in it? No. Is it entirely the work of God? Yes. I mean, we just sit back and relax? No. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my absence, but much more in my... uh, Slow down, Rick. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Live it out. Do it with fear and trembling. Remain faithful. Like, roll up your sleeves, have a prayer life, get into the Word, do it with fear and trembling. But then he says in verse 13, and I'm glad it doesn't stop there, because I would fail on my face. You know, should I share this or not? I'm going to. (laughs) My daughter was watching some kids the other day, and uh, one of the kids was up on chairs stacked on top of each other, and he was up on on the second chair there. This little guy. And he had taken his shirt and he put his shirt, he brought up his knees and he put his shirt over his knees. And I think he might even have put his, I'm starting to laugh already. He, he might have even put his arms in there. But the problem was, he's there now and he's all kind of bundled up like this. And he's on this chair and he just kind of starts rocking. And he lost his balance. And because his arms were in here, he couldn't brace himself. So just like a rock, boom. Right on his face. <laughs> and uh, my first reaction was, are you okay? But the more I replayed it, I had to turn my head away <laughs> and start like, because it was just, boom. And I'm just thinking, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, if we just stop there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that's me. Boom. It's not going to work. But it continues, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
You work it out with fear and trembling. Why? With that confidence that it's God who's actually working it in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So He's giving us the will, and He's enabling us to do the work. It's His work inside of us. And so now we have the confidence to say, I'm going to open up the Word of God, and I know it's not fully dependent upon me, because it's His Spirit, and He's going to impart it, and He's gracious and merciful, and I know I belong to Him because He's given me the faith in Christ. And so I can continue because it's His work in me. How do you, how do you, uh, you know, work all that out? I don't know how you untwist all of that and see where our responsibility and God's work, and you can't put them in. It's just all there, and ultimately we know that it's all His work, and He gives us the desire and the power and the ability. But then He still tells us uh, to exercise that effort, and so we are kept eternally secure by God's power through the Word in answer to Christ's intercession. But the very fact that God has chosen the Spirit through the Word of God means that it also assumes a responsibility on our part. In order for the Word to perform the sanctifying work for which God intended it, we must appropriate it. We study, we read, we obey, we submit our lives. So then, we cannot divorce man's effort, or labor, or striving from perseverance. That's why we encounter so many scriptures that seem to indicate we must, you know, endure to the end. Matthew 10.22 says that you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Luke 8, again, speaking of the parable of the sower, but as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. And bear fruit with patience. That seems a lot like personal responsibility. Romans 2 verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. And again, that seems a lot like personal responsibility. So is it God or is it us? Jude 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God. But then in verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Keep yourself in the love of God. But then glorify the God who is the one who is able to keep you. Paul understood this conflict. We're almost done here, by the way. 1 Corinthians 15 Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Now, what would be the evidence in Paul's life that God's grace was not given to him in vain? Grace is unmerited, right? I mean, everything that I am, I am by the grace of God. He says, his grace was not given to me in vain. How does he prove that? Well, he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He says, God's grace was not given to me in vain because I worked. God's grace, but then personal effort. But then he says, though it was not I but the grace of God that was in me. And that's the balance. And the balance is, it's all God's grace, and by God's grace I work, but even the work that I do, it's all by God's grace. He told Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I mean, that speaks of, you know, labor, fights, take hold of eternal life. But then ultimately we understand, only possible by the grace of God. 
And so you say, okay, Paul, well, which one is it? Is it, is it, is it you or is it Christ living out then that Christian life? And the answer is it's both, but ultimately God is the one responsible for any effort we put forth. He's given us his grace, and by his grace we live in a way that pleases him. Anything that we do that pleases him is a product of his grace. And so any obedience you render, simply say, thank God. Any temptation you endure, say, thank God. Any effort that you uh, exert in reading or studying or praying or counseling others or encouraging others, say, Lord, thank you for your grace in me because it would not be possible without you. Due entirely to his grace and his spirit within us, enabling us. Consequently, we can labor. Through that faithful endurance, we persevere to the end. So in conclusion... We will all encounter those in this life who came, claim to believe in Jesus, and continue for a time, but later renounce the faith. We're going to encounter those who hear the gospel and respond with joy and excitement, only to quickly fall away when it becomes obvious that following Jesus brings a cost, rejection, ridicule, even persecution. We will encounter those who start out well, appearing to believe and continuing for a while, but then they're just drawn away by the cares of the world, riches and pleasures and cares of this life and relationships and so on, deeming those things more precious than Jesus. And then they depart from the faith. So what do we say of these? They lost their salvation? They were once saved, but now they're not saved? We can't say that. We say that they were genuine believers, but now they're not? Do we say that they were given by God to the Son, but then they jumped out of the Son's hands? To say that is to say that the Spirit has failed in His ministry of sanctifying through the Word. It's to say that Jesus Christ has failed in His intercession to the Father. And it's to say that the Father does not hear the Son when the Son intercedes on behalf of a genuine believer. Those who continue for a time but fall away prove that they are never genuine believers to begin with. And John speaks to this when he says that they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not at all of us. So the Bible teaches more than the fact that our eternal destiny is secured at the moment of salvation. It also teaches that with that salvation, God has given us the ability and endurance to remain faithful to the end. It's a whole package deal, right? That faith to believe in a moment is uh, given to us by God along with an enduring faith uh, that is sustained all the way to the end. That's why Jesus could say in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so with genuine salvation comes faithful continuance in his word. And that faithful continuance is the product of a Trinitarian work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Genuine salvation is accompanied with God-empowered endurance. He keeps us, and he does it by producing in us spiritual desires and spiritual stamina and faithful continuance in following Christ. Not our work, it's God's work, but it's not divorced from our effort. A genuine believer will show evidence that God is performing this work in them. Just as God has created and sustains the universe, so God creates us uh, spiritually and sustains us. The evidence of this creative work in nature is all around us. We see the evidence that he's sustaining, and so too the genuine believer will show ongoing evidence that he's being sustained uh, by the work of Christ. It's obvious that all things are being sustained uh, by God 
in the life of a believer. Because why? You see uh, increasing Christ-likeness. You're seeing an increasing distance between their previous life. You see an increasing change uh, from the life they once lived in the world. Likewise, those who have become new creations in Christ will show evidence of being sustained by Jesus all the way until the end. Now, so what do we do with that? On one hand, we simply say, thank you, right? We confess your salvation is secure, not because of you and not because of me, but because of Jesus Christ interceding on our behalf, the Father hearing, and he then, in response to that prayer, sending the Spirit and working through his means in order to sustain us in the faith. And so simply say, thank you, Lord. But then also recognize that the means he uses requires effort. And so continue in the faith. If you're a new believer this morning, understand this does take effort, but never trust your effort. It takes effort. Grow, pray, read, study, have relationships with fellow believers, do all that, but recognize your growth is a product of God's work in you. So thank him, but work, and then thank him that you can work. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, God, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The Bible says that God loved us while we were yet sinners, right? You are not to be uh, of a certain status or certain ability or certain worth in order for God to save you. Okay, and I'm sorry that you may have been experienced to uh, exposed to some Christian circles where it appears as if these people uh, present themselves as better than others. The fact of the matter is God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you as you are sympathetic to your weaknesses, understanding you're a sinner, understanding that you're unworthy. And in fact, that's the confession that needs to be made in order to be saved. Right. And so we all are. We are all sinners and uh, all in need of Jesus Christ's salvation. And so if you're here this morning, you're not yet a believer, understand that Jesus Christ died for your sin so that you can have a relationship with God, so they can reconcile you to the Father. If you would like to have that peace with God, understanding that he has adopted you into his family, you have that connection, full acceptance, not based upon your worthiness, but the worthiness of Jesus, you simply need to express your faith and trust in Jesus to the Father. Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is your Son. I believe he died for me on the cross. I believe he paid for my sin, sin that I could not pay for. He did this when I was undeserving. I believe this, and I'm trusting him as my Savior, and I want to follow him, right? Express that to God, and uh, you too will have the Holy Spirit, right? Adopted into his family, and he'll give you an enduring faith that will continue to the end. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for your Wise design of salvation. Lord, we confess this morning as Christians that we are unworthy. There's nothing in us that um, makes us worthy of salvation. Lord, we confess this morning that we need Jesus. We need his salvation, yes. We uh, needed him to save us when we couldn't save ourselves. But even now, as believers, we confess our unworthiness. You've adopted us into your family. You've given us status as your children. You've loved us. And Lord, uh, you continue to work in us. We confess that we remain unable. It's only by your Holy Spirit inside of us that we can obey. It's only by your Holy Spirit that we can understand your word, that we can apply your word, that we can... Uh, endure temptation, that we can do anything that pleases you. It's only by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We also recognize that with the Holy Spirit comes a need to 
exert ourselves to put forth effort to read your word, and to study and to uh, resist temptation and uh, to pursue godliness. And Lord, we fail in these areas. We fail continually. Forgive us for our failures, but we recognize that even in the face of our failures, that doesn't mean rejection. It doesn't mean that our salvation becomes insecure. Instead, we understand that as genuine believers, Lord, ultimately, you're going to sustain our faith. You lead us to repentance. You lead us to recognize our faults and our failures. You lead us to um, repent and to turn again and to pursue Christ. And Lord, we just thank you for the sustaining work. Maybe there's some here this morning who are just kind of there in that valley. They're struggling. Maybe a pattern of sin in their lives. Um, Maybe even to the point where they're doubting their own salvation because of their continual sin. Lord, I pray that you'd be gracious and merciful. We understand that Jesus is sympathetic to our weaknesses. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show this one, a genuine believer, that uh, they are saved and that the sensitivity they have towards their own sin is a product of your Holy Spirit. We pray that they'd recognize your goodness and that your goodness would lead them to repentance. Bring them back to yourself. Help them to experience a personal revival. Help them to take up your means of grace, your means of growth. And uh, I just pray that you would assure this man or woman who's a believer, but frankly not living like it in the moment. Assure them of your love and your acceptance. Affirm that in them. And I pray that that goodness would lead them, Lord, to renounce the sin that they've gotten themselves up into. But we thank you for that. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray for any this morning who are not yet believers. We pray that they'd understand their need for Jesus their need for forgiveness of their sin, and help them to get it out of their mind that salvation comes to those who are deserving or comes to those who are good people. Uh, We understand the exact opposite is true. We need salvation because we're not worthy and because we're not good people. And so I pray that uh, you'd help these to see that you love them and that uh, you sent Jesus for them. And I pray that they would express to you their faith in Jesus, trusting him as Savior and Lord. And I pray that you begin to transform their lives through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his ongoing work. And help us now to labor as those who have the confidence that you're working in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.